Welcome to Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community, as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers, to the WFIU audience. Recently, the conference Bloomington Eats Green brought two speakers to the Indiana University campus, both of them with strong ties to the thriving local food movement. Today, we're speaking with both of them, Gary Paul Napan and Joel Salatin. Our first guest, Napan, is the author of a number of books, including Where Our Food Comes From. He's a professor at the University of Arizona, and he has worked with nonprofit organizations such as the Renewing America's Food Traditions Collaborative. He practices what he preaches and only eats within a 220-mile radius of his home in what he affectionately calls the stinking hot desert. He has another title that he's adopted for himself. I'm a bioterrorist, and I live in Arizona, but I'm a Hoosier refugee. What is your connection to Indiana? You talked a little bit about this. I grew up in the Indiana Dunes, and my grandfather was a fruit peddler up on Lake Michigan that sold fruit to fishermen up on Lake Michigan when Lake Michigan was commercially fished. And then I played hooky a lot and <clears throat> quit high school to work for the McCarthy campaign all over Indiana. That ages me. And um, spent two high school summers on this campus. Oh, really? On some kind of weird leadership training uh, thing that they had for high school kids here in the 70s and 80s. Hmm. 60, yeah. Well, welcome 60s. back. Yeah, thank you. What's in your fridge right now? What is in my fridge right now is some of our own lamb and turkey, a bunch of grape leaves and prickly pear that I harvested last summer, and a few (laughs) roadkills. I was chastised by Barbara Kingsolver for trying to promote local foods nationally by getting people involved in roadkills, and she said it won't work. That's why I have to write a best-selling book to follow yours because you're not going to do it that way. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Uh, Well, you're also, in addition to being a terroirist, you're an ethnobotanist. What's an ethnobotanist? An ethnobotanist is uh, someone who looks at the cultural traditions of food and medicines among the diverse communities of any particular place. Mm And so we go around the world eating our way through different cultural traditions. It's a wonderful way to spend a career. I was going to say, that sounds like a great job. Yeah. Wow. You've been called the father of the local food movement. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big responsibility. And as my wife said, who's the mother? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> How'd you get that title? I don't know. It came from being in a Time magazine cover story about local versus organic and then Mother Earth News then said I was father of the local food movement and then I went to Carleton College to accept an honorary PhD and I said, why am I getting this? And they said, because you're the father of the local food movement. And I said, I am? (laughs) You know, so it's – you wonder how these things creep up on you, you know. Is it a lot of pressure to live up to that? Well, I would give credit to the grandparents of the local food movement, Joan Gasau and Wendell Berry and uh, people like that rather than trying to figure out the parentage. <laughs> the grandparentage is a lot more interesting to yeah. me. Well, let's start off with some definitions. Okay. Tell me um, what is a GMO, genetically modified organism? A GMO is uh, an organism that has been developed by scientists in a laboratory using what are called transgenic uh, technologies where we're literally taking uh, the inheritance of one species of organism and transferring it, whether it's disease resistance or a nutritional characteristic or a biochemical pathway and putting that into another kind of organism. Both farmers and plant breeders and animal breeders have been doing genetic manipulations uh, 
for thousands of years, but it's the intensity of this technology and how much it costs and how much control companies want from that that have become the moral and political issues. And of course, there are definitely moral issues about moving genes from sheep into people or cloning sheep or something like that. So uh, it's sort of like the technology has gotten ahead of the moral and ethical discussions of how these impact the world. Mm-hmm. Then what is a monoculture? A monoculture is uh, a single crop or in some cases a single genetic clone being grown over hundreds if not thousands or tens of thousands of acres. So it's a genetically uniform food-producing plant or animal uh, that has very little natural variety left in it. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. To you, what is slow food? Slow food is a nickname for a broad, diffuse movement that is encouraging us to look for alternatives to fast food, first of all. And secondly, to uh, uh, support uh, the producers and purveyors of food that is produced in safe, clean, and fair ways. And then to you, since you are the father of the local food movement, what is local eating? Local eating is paying attention to sourcing our foods from the nearest place from which we can obtain a particular food. And the uh, definition of local depends on the environment that you're in. So people in Portland, Oregon can access fish, livestock, fruits, and vegetables from radius of 40 miles around their home where those of us in the desert might want to define local as a 250-mile radius. That's right. And you eat – you try to eat now. 220 miles, I believe, is what the dust jacket said. That's right. How difficult is that or how easy is it? Uh, There's a lot of variability in productivity from year to year in the desert. So I can personally do that fairly comfortably, but I'm more interested in what a community can do than an individual. All of us, if we spend enough crazy energy, can probably source most of our food from more narrow proximity than that. But if we're trying to help a community transition to a a less uh, carbon consumptive food economy, then looking more broadly at these issues is sometimes necessary. And another, our last definition, heirloom seeds. Heirloom seeds are um, particular uh, adapted stocks of seeds that have been passed hand to hand by people in the same place over many generations. They may be native seeds or immigrant seeds that have come into a particular locality, but then they have multiple generations of being uh, passed uh, through family members or through community members rather than being purchased from a seed company or uh, some kind of clearinghouse. Tell me why they're important. Why should people use them in their gardens? There's more uh, genetic diversity uh, left in these seeds and often they were selected for flavor, texture and keeping qualities that we don't see in a lot of modern cultivars of vegetables. But they also are adapted to place in a way that reduces the amount of pampering including water and energy uh, that would be needed to grow them if they were grown out of place. And, and let's talk now about apples. People oh, love apples. I love apples. I know. We're in uh, sort of an apple area, I guess. We have a lot of orchards. People like to go pick apples. Uh, and we know like Granny Smith, Red Delicious. I think the apples that people generally eat and buy from the grocery stores, you know, maybe a dozen, half dozen. Uh, there's so much more to apples than that though. Talk to me about uh, what you know about the varieties of apples. At one time, Americans had access to 16,000 different varieties of apples, sour ones and sweet ones, red ones and yellow ones, tear-shaped ones and lumpy ones, ones that were good for making cider, others for pies, others for fritters, others for pancakes and sauces. 
now 90 percent of the apples eaten in North America are from just 12 varieties and most kids can only name two or three different apples if that. And so a red delicious becomes all that a child thinks an apple can be and it would be like thinking that all dogs are like Lassie and not knowing that dogs range from Chihuahuas to St. Bernard's except in this case we're missing out on incredible flavors and textures. 91% of the 3,500 apples that we have left in nursery commerce in the United States are threatened and endangered. Uh, they're being offered by just a couple nurseries and the average age of a nurseryman is older than the average age of a farmer. So we're um, at risk of losing uh, many of the 3,500 apples that we have left on this continent unless we do something about it soon. And through the Renewing America's Food Traditions Alliance, we're training hundreds if not thousands of more people to go out and collect cuttings from apple trees called cyan wood, uh, learn how to graft them and, and uh, grow those apples out in abandoned orchards. Southern Indiana and Southern Illinois, because of a character uh, known as Johnny Appleseed, are in the seed shadow of one of the great areas of apple diversity on the North American continent. Uh, Johnny Appleseed propagated apples by seed rather than by cuttings and so a great uh, range of uh, varieties emerged out of these uh, pippins or seedling apples. And so right where we are today is one of the most diverse areas in North America for apples. You have some orchards near here that have 700 varieties, which is astonishing. And you have one of the top 10 farmers markets in the country that has many great heirloom varieties. Uh, farmers market like the Bloomington one probably has 60 to 80 apple varieties in comparison to most grocery stores that have 5 to 10. You're an apple lover. So what's your favorite apple to eat raw right off the tree? I love something called the candle synap, which is a crisp, uh, pale-fleshed uh, apple that's sort of uh, teardrop shape. It's from Crimea and Russia and, and Turkey originally, but has been grown in the U.S. for over a century. And um, it's just unlike any apple I've ever seen. It looks like this... Um, translucent globe of light hanging from a tree like candles were put in a tree. It's, it's a pale yellow skin and it just has a crispness and freshness and uh, kind of vanilla and cinnamon uh, aftertaste that are just stunning. Well, vanilla and cinnamon aftertaste, that I, I would put that in a pie sounds like. What's a good apple for pie? Well, it depends where you make the pie. In the south, people tend to like uh, tart apples for pies and in the north, they like sweets and vice versa for their fresh eating apples. So it's from what kind of pie tradition that you've uh, merged. Uh, if you uh, like tart apples, uh, uh, some in the range of the Granny Smiths, I'm not promoting Granny Smiths alone, but that have that kind of nice uh, tartness or bite to them is, is – uh, Nice, but um, you know, there's apples like Magnum Bonum and and uh, Gloria Mundi that are old apple varieties that make terrific pies. Um, and I like a lot of the uh, Witter Pear Mains uh, for pies. Good, good keeping apples that then um, you can use a month or two after they've been picked and still have great apple pies. It used to be that. Apples were celebrated for being good keepers. That was the vernacular phrase for an apple that could last a long time in storage and still taste great. And I think we ought to promote the notion of good keepers as something that we want in our community, again, whether they're people or apples. I like uh, it. Well, hearing you talk uh, about all these varieties of apples, I'm intrigued. I'm not sure I've had any of those apples that you're talking about. How did we get here? How did we get to the point where I go to the supermarket and I can only buy four or five different varieties? Well, it's a stepwise uh, reduction in apples that have happened over about 120 years from the first 
mail order uh, Apple catalogs uh, with the beautiful color pictures that said, grow red delicious and you can put your kid through college or something like that. And uh, Apple salesmen were some of the first traveling salesmen in the U.S. once the railroads uh, went through. And so the thrill of having a color uh, catalog show up with your door and then two weeks later an Apple salesman is a great thrill for rural people. And so places like the Stark Brothers Nurseries captured the American imagination with their promotion of apples. It was much like P.T. Barnum promoting circuses and uh, temporarily wowed people. And the next thing we knew, uh, about 100 apples were dominating trade rather than several thousand. Then the industrialization of apple production meant that people were looking for uniform apples that uh, could be mechanically uh, harvested and uh, shipped in uh, frozen boxes. So apples that had different keeping qualities from the norm that the business was looking for affected it. And then we lost tons of apples during prohibition because most Americans were still drinking hard cider more than beer or wine up until that time. And hard cider became one of the targets of prohibition. And by the time prohibition was repealed, uh, a lot of the knowledge about how to make hard cider from heirloom apple blends went out. Fortunately, we're seeing a revival in both hard and sweet ciders of heirloom apple blends. Uh, let's talk now about your career. You're a lecturer. You travel all over speaking to groups like you did. You've written all these books. You teach at the University of Arizona. I, it feels like you're preaching to the choir a little bit. The group that was in the auditorium on Friday, co-op buyers, uh, people who try to eat locally, live sustainably. How do you get your message out to people who eat at McDonald's all the time, who don't go to co-ops? Well, the interesting thing is that um, doing conservation work through food communities rather than doing conservation work through, say, the Sierra Club or World Wildlife Fund has put me into contact with people of far more walks of life, income levels, and ethnic backgrounds than any of my previous conservation work working for nonprofits and universities. And that's because everyone at some level deeply cares about their food and has food memories from a more diverse time in America. So there's sort of a personal, visceral, sensory appeal to this because we all have food memories of an heirloom tomato or a delicious lime or lemon or, or orange or pomegranate or uh, strawberry that we can't find anymore. And what I find is that um, the food activism crosses cultures more easily than other kinds of environmental issues. That uh, I'm talking to Republican conservative ranchers one day in a small town in Idaho or uh, or Texas. The next day, I'm talking to urban permaculturalists uh, living in multi-ethnic neighborhoods in Chicago or New Orleans. And to me, that's pretty amazing that people across all colors and walks of life are concerned about our food system and want something healthier not only for themselves but for their children and for their parents. You got a great question on Friday from someone in the audience. Uh, an excuse that I know I personally hear often for not eating locally. It's expensive to go to the co-op and to go to the farmer's market. Talk to those people. Um, local food restaurants that are paying farmers and orchard keepers uh, what they're worth tend to have higher price points than uh, a red lobster or a, a steakhouse. But at the same time, uh, the average price in farmers' markets is often lower than the same commodity in grocery store chain stores. The same apple, however, may be higher in a Whole Foods or a, a health food store where there's a lot of middlemen involved. So one part of the local food movement is to reduce the number of middlemen because uh, – Today, farmers get 4 to 15 percent of every consumer dollar if they're 
putting their food into the commodity market. A hundred years ago, they were getting 60 percent of every uh, consumer dollar. The rest of that money is going to the middlemen. So if farmers are offering their food directly to you at a farmer's market, they have some extra costs that they have to cover in terms of the gas and getting there rather than letting a truck pick up their produce at the farm. But typically those foods are coming in lower in my surveys than what we might see at a grocery store change or certainly something like Whole Foods. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a lot of um, scrutiny that we have to look at the, the cost of very nutritious, healthy, fresh food relative to what we're getting through some of the commoditized markets. And, and we have to ask ourselves whether it really is more expensive to eat well or not. Expense aside, what do you suppose is the biggest misconception of local eating? Um, I think there are two misconceptions. The simplistic uh, view is that um, it's always less costly and less carbon costly to get uh, something from closer to your house than it is something from uh, 500 miles away. In some cases, because small pickup trucks do use more gas than a big uh, diesel truck full of produce, um, the price per uh, unit weight is higher with a with a food coming, say, from a farm 40 or 50 miles away than it is larger size farm of um, food coming from 500 miles away. But we have the capacity with local food to change some of those variables easier. We can collaborate with four or five nearby farmers and take turns bringing all of our produce into a market in a slightly larger biodiesel truck. We can go back from town with our truck full, which typically doesn't happen with uh, some of the national food distribution services. We can also um, uh, work on how much energy goes into the food on the farm and reduce that rather than uh, just thinking about the transportation issue as a separate issue. So the big misconception is that local necessarily means closest to where I'm picking it up. It may be that um, there's efficiencies in having uh, a route through different habitats over a 150-mile range that brings a variety of foods because each of those farms are at a different point in the season and that our greatest efficiencies are building relationships across uh, zones closer to home but not thinking that mileage is the only uh, metric that we should be looking at. One of the goals of our show is to get people to feel more connected to their food and where it's coming from. You, you've been doing this your whole life. How, how have you felt a change knowing where your food has come from, knowing that it's come closer to where you live? Uh, talk about the human aspect of that. Um, first of all, I feel this incredible rapport with the people who grow the part of food I eat that I don't grow. So that my neighbors who I buy beef from, I raise lamb and uh, periodically turkeys, are now friends and we swap foods. We have an exchange network and I know the struggles they're going through. So the food has a human face and I know the place that it's from. Second of all, I feel that I'm made from the very molecules of the place that I live in, from the soil that I live in because so much of my food is uh, from my place. So I don't feel displaced anymore. I feel connected to the community and the land in a way that I carry with me spiritually, emotionally, and viscerally. And I think that uh, grounds my life and makes me feel less lost in uh, a rapidly changing world. We had a listener write in with the question, compare a conventional tomato that's locally grown with an heirloom tomato that's been flown in. What kind of trade-off should we accept in this interim period as we're advocating for more locally grown heirloom organic produce? What we're talking about here is that we tend to have a, a human uh, propensity for pitting one kind of label of something we value against another and seeing them as either-or choices. For instance, uh, most of the uh, local produce in the 
farmer's market that I helped jumpstart up near the Grand Canyon in northern Arizona uh, was not certified organic but it was local of course and none of it could be officially labeled organic. But when we talked to the farmers, regardless of them having that official legal label, almost all of them were using organic practices. And so that it's a false choice to think it's either local or organic there. On the other hand, um, I've stopped eating strawberries or including organic strawberries from Chile in the winter and I've – uh, resolve myself to just eating strawberries in season that are grown uh, closer to home because I don't quite see uh, the value of bringing in organic strawberries from 5,000 miles away. So I think the the key thing is that as we're making these transitions to to have some flexibility and get deeper than the labels. Uh, what I say, deepen our sense of local, uh, that that we can get trapped if we take these things as categorical entities that, for instance, is, is um, food really local in Arizona if it's using groundwater that's transferred from a river 250 miles away or from, from uh, water from a well 500 feet deep? Uh, we could claim that the food is local, but it's using extra local water and fossil fuel. So we need to get beyond uh, simple labels and look at what's sustainable both to the land and water and perhaps the cultures that are uh, the best stewards of the land and uh, move towards sort of a more holistic, improvisational way of making these choices. And to some extent, I, I think the interesting thing about buying from the farmer's market is that there's some kind of traceability and means to obtain more information about it. So if I f see a guy selling pork and two weeks later I happen to drive by, by his farm and there's a lot of erosion going on and I see his farm sign, I say, oh boy, that is local pork but now I have an indicator that he may not be as good of a land steward as I had presumed. Who are the other pork salesmen at the market and can I see their farming practices? So to some extent, it, it's about relationship building, that if, if we want to go back to that uh, pork producer and say, boy, I'd feel a lot more comfortable with buying your pork if you have some perennial forages rather than a dry lot with open mud there. I'd really help promote your products to my neighbors if, if you could uh, improve your practices. And then I hear, I've always wanted to do that, but I've never had the incentive for it. We built a relationship that's positively reinforcing. He's challenging the way I eat and I'm challenging the way he farms in a positive way. Gary Paul Nabhan, father of the local food movement, author, environmental activist, lecturer, and bioterroirist. You can find out more about him on his website, GaryNabhan.com. That's Gary, N-A-B-H-A-N. Let's take a moment now to listen to some music. Here's the artist Mira singing Don't Die in Me. Here's an apple with a tougher skin, a lyric from the song Don't Die in Me from 2004 by Mira. Production support for Profiles comes from 
Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And the Funeral Chapel of Bloomington, providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The Funeral Chapel, to honor and commemorate. 333-4400 or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com. From apples and farmers markets now to piggerators and grub aside, Joel Salatin is a farmer, lecturer, and the author of a number of informational books about food and farming. His farm, Polyface, is a family-owned, pasture-based, beyond-organic operation located in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. He was featured in the documentary Food, Inc., and in the book Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. He's a reluctant celebrity in the local food movement. <laughs> well, I don't wear that fame uh, shoe very uh, very easily. I mean, we certainly never aspire to this, but uh, it's, it's very exciting to see the number of people who are ready to make a change. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's very gratifying to see that. How much time are you spending on the farm now that you're out and about so much? Yeah, I, I'm uh, probably a third gone and two-thirds on the farm. Uh, probably 120 days a year I'm traveling. Your farm is Polyface Farms. Give me the Reader's Digest version of the history of that. Sure. Well, uh, we came in 1961. My parents uh, bought the farm in 1961 Spent you know the first ten years essentially trying to do conservation things, some innovative things. Dad did uh, did some portable structures, and of course we were non chemical. Dad was was non chemical. Uh, he got that from his dad, who was a charter subscriber to Rodale's uh, Gardening's Organic Gardening and Farming Magazine from Anderson, Indiana. And so I have I have some roots here uh, for sure. Then as we came along, uh, we gradually just refined and tweaked and and. Dad died in 88, and I've just kept, you know, refining those ideas. We do uh, salad bar beef, uh, grass-finished beef, piggerator pork, pastured poultry, pastured eggs, pastured turkey, and uh, pastured rabbit. Those are our main uh, products. You call yourself a Christian, libertarian, environmentalist, capitalist farmer. So let's break that down title by title. Christian. I am a Christian, and I think uh, that the that the Judeo Christian ethic calls us to realize that we are stewards of creation; that we're not to just rape it, pillage it, whatever. We are we are to steward it, and lays down certain principles of growth. I mean, um, you know, when God made it in Genesis, uh, the the plants were to reproduce after their own kind. And genetic modification uh, doesn't make plants produce after their own kind. So, you know, even to that point, there are some nuances of, of, uh, of order and template, you know, a, a template there to live by. Okay. Libertarian? Libertarian. All right. Well, I don't think every time there's a problem, we need to look at the government for a solution. I think the government is the problem on many, many things. And if we would free up entrepreneurial uh, innovation – and not give corporate welfare to big business and special concessions to big business and regulations that aren't scalable, that always hurt the little person more than the big person, I think that the the size of big outfits – I'll just use that word use loosely – outfits would crumble in of its own bureaucracy, uh, which is one of the principles that Joel Arthur Barker, who coined the term paradigm – addressed that every paradigm exceeds its point of efficiency at some point. And so instead of artificially propping up big dinosaurs, we should let the dinosaurs collapse and fall so that a phoenix can rise from the ashes. And environmentalist? Environmentalist. Uh, I am a tree hugger. Uh, I think that it is important that salamanders have four legs and that frogs remain fertile. And uh, I have a real problem with the Christian right stereotype that hasn't put – has put a lot more emphasis on dominion than on nurturing. So that tends to balance out the, you know, the dominion part. Capitalist. 
capitalist. Yes, I don't apologize for running a business that makes a profit. Uh, we too often just um, push the profit under the rug, uh, but at the end of the day, a profit is the lifeblood of a business. We can't we can't make improvements. We can't make you know creative innovations unless there's a little bit of money left over at the end of the day to put into something new. So yes, I'm not embarrassed to say we strive and do make a profit. It's okay. Let's move on now to definitions. Define factory farming for me. Uh, factory farming to me is when you confine animals at a magnitude and at a density that keeps them from having a habitat that allows them to express their physiological distinctiveness. And so for a pig, that means a pig that can't root would not be able to express his pigness. And so a slatted floor confinement house, you know, is not an acceptable uh, solution. A cow should be able to graze. So when you confine them and you shoot them uh, just corn and silage, that's not an acceptable uh, situation. Uh, A cow is a four-legged sauerkraut vat and uh, needs forage, uh, just like sauerkraut needs cabbage leaves, uh, to ferment. And so, so factory farming can actually be done on a pretty small scale by those kinds of definitions if you're not allowing the animal to express its physiological distinctiveness. Okay, now define organic farming. Organic, uh, as, it, as it started by J.I. Rodale back in 1948, was an idea. It, it, it was an idea. It was, it was an idea of social, environmental, economic, nutritional. It was just an idea that encompassed, that was very eclectic. Uh, unfortunately, it has now been codified in federal law pretty much as a system of do's and don'ts that every day are being eroded uh, because the government owns the word and, of course, it's in collusion with the big organic growers. So we now have the organic industrial, like Michael Pollan described in Omnivore's Dilemma, and um, and it takes, uh, it takes people like, you know, the Cornucopia Project and that sort of thing to continue suing the USDA to enforce its own organic standards. And uh, that's unfortunate. But to me, organic is an idea. Uh, and so you know, I don't use the word anymore, but I use different words, which, which encourage discussion instead of hardening of the categories. So then what is polyface farming? Well, polyface farm is a multi-species, pasture-based, diversified kind of uh, farming that is not limited to animals, vegetables, or whatever, uh, in which the farmer sees himself or herself as a, um, as a massager of the landscape as opposed to just a cattle farmer, dairy farmer, orchardist, whatever. No, rather, we're stewards of this, of this niche of creation, and the more uh, relationships that we can build on that, the more stable and productive it will be. In the talk you gave in Bloomington recently, you spoke a little bit about your animals as being co-laborers. That's an interesting concept. Talk a little bit about that. Part of building these relationships is to allow the different plants and animals to express their distinctiveness in in a certain functional niche. In mainline, you know, 21st century American farming, uh, we simply are trying to produce more pounds of bacon or more dozens of eggs or whatever with no thought to the role that that animal or a plant can fill in a functional niche. And so, uh, for example, we follow the cows with the egg mobiles and the chickens then, like the egret on the rhino's nose in nature, the chickens then scratch through the cow patties, eat out the fly larva, push the, scratch the dung into the into the soil on a much wider area, obviously, than, than just the patty to begin with. And so there's a balanced uh, nutrition to the soil. There's um, an insecticide principle, a grubicide, a parasiticide, and they convert the grasshoppers and crickets, which compete with the cows for the, for the grass. They turn those insects into 
more nutrient-dense eggs than you could ever get in a factory uh, caged farming situation. And so the, the chickens then save us from having to run the cows through a head gate and give them grubicides and parasiticides and things like that. And so the, the chickens come alongside us in this, in this land healing concept. I was speaking with people at the radio station. Actually, someone I work with had visited your farm in the mid-1990s, so she was really excited to hear that you're in town today. People can visit your farm. They can touch your animals. They can see the process, and then they can buy your products. And you have chef appreciation days. You have farm fairs. Why is this so important for you to do? Oh, it's important because, number one, for our own accountability, we need transparency. Michael Pollan said this in Omnivore's Dilemma. He said, if if all factory farms had glass walls, every American would be a vegetarian or, or we would demand something different. All right. And so it is the very opaqueness of the food system. You you can't just go out to a factory farm and visit. You can't just go to, you know, the Campbell Soup Company and, and walk in for a tour. All right. Uh, so it's the very opaqueness of the food system that enables the kind of shortcuts, whether they're nutritional, environmental, economic, or social, uh, the kind of shortcuts that we see in the food system. So we are fundamentally committed to a a 100% transparent farm. You know, if you think that we're putting on 10, 10, 10 chemical fertilizer at 2 a.m. in the morning, uh, or that's when we crank up the spray rigs, you know, to do it in the dark of night. Well, you just come right on at 2 o'clock in the morning and, and, and see for yourself. Don't wake me up, but you are welcome to visit and walk the fields. That's what I'm saying. It's, uh, uh, transparency is the beginning of accountability. And when we don't have transparency, then we don't have accountability. When we don't have accountability, we don't have integrity. And so all of those three things go together. That's why. You can also watch the animals being slaughtered and prepared. I could buy a pig that I see you kill. That might make some people uncomfortable. Well, it may, although we believe that one of the reasons that we're having some nonsensical thinking in our culture right now is because people are so removed from the life, death, decomposition, regeneration cycle. I mean, this cycle has been going on, you know, a lot longer than Twinkies and Cocoa Puffs have been made. And uh, we think that it's actually very healthy for people to see, to get this viscerally connected with this cycle of life. And interestingly, uh, we have typically, you know, families come, they want to, the children maybe, they want to come and see the, the chicken butchering, for example. Well, mom and dad, they're, you know, in their late 20s or 30s. They stay out behind in the car, and the, and the 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old children, 7-year-old children, come around to see this. And we have not found any child under 10 that's the least bit put off by it. They get right into it. We'll even give them a knife and let them slice some throats, you know, so they so they can actually see it. They haven't been yucked out yet. They haven't been sanitized in their thinking. This was what every person did, you know, before we became uh, so sophisticated that we thought we could just feed ourselves with little vitamin chips and, uh, you know, a high-powered, uh, um, you know, nutrient drink. So we think that that's a good thing to be involved at least once or twice in your life to actually be involved with it, to actually see it. We do a a foodie show here called Earth Eats. We like local food. That's what we're all about. So let's say I go to your farm. Tell me what I can buy. I can buy beef, pork. What else? Uh, You can buy beef, pork, chicken. You can buy whole chicken, uh, boneless, skinless breasts, uh, legs and thighs. I mean, all the, the parts you can buy a whole chicken cut up. Uh, You can buy stewing hens, which are not very common anymore. Rabbit, in-season turkeys. Uh, We normally have turkeys from, oh, late August until through Christmas. I think we've got about six left. Yeah, there's a pretty wide array. You were talking about rabbits. Chefs buy rabbits from you a lot. And that's not something we have on the menu around here too much. I've never had rabbit. Tell me what it tastes like. Well, go to New York or San Francisco, and you'll see rabbit. Uh, rabbit is um, is a very dense. It's it's the it's the most dense protein uh, meat that there is, 
In fact, historically, that's one reason why the biggest purchaser, buyer of rabbit in our country has been the military for uh, K rations, for C, for military uh, rations, because because the, the protein is so dense, you don't have to eat very much to, to feel full. And of course, when you're packing your meals on your back, you know, you don't want a bulk, you want, you want a packed. It's a very fine textured, very dense meat, extremely flavorful. Uh, our chefs prepare it in all sorts of different ways. Culturally around the world, I mean, Italy, France, the British, uh, rabbit is, is extremely common and a, and a real delicacy in all those cultures. We talked to some of our listeners, and uh, someone here wants to know if you'd be willing to go around the country to talk to people out about setting up small farms of their own, how to get started and all that. Well, I've been doing that for a long, long time. You know, it's only been in the last five years that I've begun doing things like I did last night uh, more frequently. My whole stock in trade for, you know, whatever I've been speaking for since about 1988, so 20 years, uh, over 20 years, uh, my stock in trade has been actually doing sustainable farm conferences and workshops and and all of that to, to, to do the, the hardcore how-tos. And of course, I've written several books about that as well. Um, interestingly, our son, uh, Daniel, who's now 28, he's actually uh, shouldering a little more of that burden. In fact, he's out this weekend in uh, Toronto uh, doing a, a conference. And um, so he's now doing some of that more how-to stuff while I get the more eclectic-type audiences uh, that aren't just agrarian audiences. You're an author. You have a number of books out. So what's that like to become an author? Did you have a background in writing before that all got started? Well, actually, I did. I've always uh, had a flair for writing. Even when I was in elementary school and junior high, high school, uh, I entered these you know essay contests that you know you have for you know daughters of the American Revolution, you know Americanism essay, different things. And uh, every one of them I ever entered, I won. And so that started early, early. I'm, I'm, hey, I'm a storyteller, gregarious schmoozer. All right, and uh, people love a good story. And so, uh, so I had a flair for that, and even in college, you know, uh, won essay contests and things. So, and when I was in high school, um, I worked part time my junior year in high and senior year in high school at the local newspaper, uh, writing police reports, obituaries, things like that. Uh, they actually let me do a couple of little, you know, bigger uh, projects. And then when I got out of college, I actually worked for eighteen months as an investigative reporter at a local newspaper while I was starting, you know, trying to to get the farm up up and running. And so, yeah, writing is is in my blood. Now, when we came to the farm full-time, September 24, 1982, uh, I did not conceive that I would write, you know, lots of uh, books. But those grew out of, you know, once we, once we became successful as farmers, then people started asking us, well, how did you do this? How do you do this? And so it was natural with my flair for writing. It was natural to just go ahead and crank out. The first one I did was I did a, did a little uh, pastured poultry manual in whatever, 89, 90, something like that. That sold so well that then we just went ahead and did a full-fledged book. How do you think your political views on government have helped or hurt the cause for community-supported agriculture and environmentally friendly agriculture? Well, uh, I can't help but think that community-supported agriculture would be much uh, better and encouraged if farmers and little um, cottage cottage kitchens uh, didn't have to jump through a hundred hoops in order to uh, you know in order to make some pot pie or some heavy stew or egg noodles or you know jams and jellies and pickles and and things like this that were all part of in the indigenous food system years ago. In fact, I think there'd be nothing better than some sort of a, uh, a constitu- you know, maybe a constitutional amendment that guaranteed every American the freedom of choice to eat whatever kind of food you want. Um, you know, I think it's pretty ridiculous that we have decided in our uh, we, I mean, uh, you know, in the culture, uh, we have the food police. I call them have decided that it's uh, it's safe to to eat. Twinkies and Cocoa Puffs and Mountain Dew, but it's not safe to drink raw milk and compost-grown tomatoes. Uh, I think that's atrocious. And uh, so, so generally, I can't help but think that that I am uh, my my curmudgeonness in this is um, creating doors of opportunity 
uh, cracking that door of opportunity for entrepreneurial innovation on the local level. And finally, tell me what's in your fridge right now. What's in our fridge right now? Well, let's see, raw milk, uh, some uh, raw cheese from a, a dairy up the road, probably some leftovers, you know, from dinner, whatever that was, you know, our own uh, green beans that we can from the garden. Our cellar is full of whatever, 800, 1,000 quarts of corn and sauerkraut and green beans and beets and, pick, you know, pickles, all sorts of sweet pickles, dill pickles. That's the way we live. And I've always said if we could figure out how to grow toilet paper and tissue paper on trees, we could pretty much pull the plug on society. Nice, nice. Joel Salatin, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. Joel Salatin visited Bloomington as part of the Bloomington Eats Green Conference. When he's not traveling around the country giving lectures and teaching aspiring farmers, he spends time on his farm in Swope, Virginia. This has been Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan. We'll leave you with music by another Virginian, Patsy Cline, born in Winchester. This is Walkin' After Midnight. Thanks for listening. I go out walking after midnight out in the I'm always walking after midnight searching for you I walk for miles along the highway well that's just my way of saying I love you I'm always walking after midnight searching for The program you just heard was recorded in January of 2010. The technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And the Funeral Chapel of Bloomington, providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The Funeral Chapel, to honor and commemorate. 333-4400 or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.